0: This is Undisciplined, I'm Shoshana Bucksbaum. You might remember seeing some striking comparison photos of New Delhi circulating last spring. Before the COVID-19 lockdown, it was a city known for its thick smog and low visibility. But during lockdown, residents saw clear skies for the first time in decades. Lockdowns in India and all around the world created natural experiments for air quality researchers. Among those researchers is Daniel Mendoza. In September of 2019, he and his team set up air quality sensors in Park City, Utah. This was well before we knew the COVID pandemic was coming, and the lockdown last spring provided even more interesting data than expected. In a recently published study, Mendoza and his team analyzed the data collected before, during, and after last spring's stay-at-home order he found that air pollution was actually lower in commercial areas compared to residential ones. Daniel Mendoza is a professor in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences with joint appointments in pulmonary medicine and city and metropolitan planning at the University of Utah. Daniel Mendoza, thank you so much for being here.
1: Hello, and thank you for having me.
0: Can you tell me about why you originally decided to start collecting air quality data in Park City?
1: Yes. So this project, as you pointed out earlier on, this was not really a COVID-19 project. Park City Sustainability Office actually contacted me because they were interested in getting an idea of what the air quality is in Park City. Park City does not operate air quality sensors uh, within the city. So they really had no idea of what their pollution levels are. So that project, it took a little bit of time to get worked out until in the fall, and really late fall of 2019, we did have a chance then to install the air quality monitors. And that was really the idea to really capture what the baseline air quality is, and then really capture specific events such as the Sundance Film Festival, and also ski season and really holidays as well. What are the different factors that really impact air quality in Park City?
0: Yeah. And so then the pandemic happened and it was sort of this like natural experiment where everything kind of stopped. Can you describe a little bit about what it was like when you kind of found out that you were going to be able to do this type of research?
1: Yes. And you hit on the right word, uh, which is natural experiment. This is something that obviously we can't account for. We can't recreate. This is just something that happened. Uh, the pandemic happened, and that's when we had the shutdown. Uh, now, one of the reasons why this was very useful for us was that we had originally planned, and as I mentioned, we had the sensors already in place in a commercial area on Main Street. and. a residential area which is by the athletic recreation center the mark so what we really wanted to capture was also not just one spot in the city but really two different types of buildings which would be really a commercial area as i mentioned a residential area so when we saw the shutdown happen it got really interesting because it was really just the commercial side that shut down because people then moved and relocated to their homes. They stopped going to work. Uh, Everyone just started to either telework or just stay at home. But the reality is we started to see some really interesting shifts in air pollution.
0: Yeah. And so can you tell me a little bit about why you think there was this difference between residential and commercial areas? Like what was going on that created that disparity?
1: Right. So once we collected the data, We started to really separate the time series into four distinct periods. So one, we had the pre-pandemic, the pre-shutdown, which was six weeks uh, right before March 15th when the governor decided that we should be under a stay safe, stay home directive. Then we had six weeks of that lockdown period. Then the subsequent six weeks were what we called the easing, and the final six weeks of the study period was the reopening. Now, what happened, and I like to describe it as it's fairly easy to lock something down, you just basically mandate that everything shuts down. But really reopening and the easing periods, that that's when things get really interesting because everyone had to begin to adjust. How do we start a function again? And a really clear example is really restaurants. So restaurants started to realize they needed to improve home delivery services if they were to stay in business. And they had to, for example, rearrange seating to comply with the six-foot distance, among other variables. And so this was something that really, for us, was was very interesting to observe. Because again, as people moved and stayed home, then many people, because again, they could have just feared the potential contagion, many people started to have things delivered to their home. For example, goods. Many people started making online purchases instead of going to actual stores. Many people started to have food delivered to their homes as well, and even groceries. So that's when we started to see the shift of pollution really moving more towards residential areas because there were so many more delivery vehicles uh, out on the roads, really delivering all these goods to people. So we actually, when we saw the shutdown and we saw essentially pollution decrease to almost zero in commercial areas, we saw some of that shift over to residential areas.
0: Yeah, and so that pollution that you saw in residential areas during the lockdown period, was that still lower than before the lockdown?
1: We actually saw that there was first a drop in pollution overall. I think that at some point people were just very confused, very wary of the potential exposure risks. But then little by little, we did see some of the pollution levels increase. Now, what we're doing is we've done statistical inference and statistical methods to really understand, are these differences statistically significant? And we really saw that during the lockdown for sure, there was definitely a marked drop. But then we actually saw an increase in uh, pollution residential areas. Now, there are many factors that affect this. And one we really need to consider is that, unfortunately, at least in terms of science, uh, the study really spans three fairly distinct seasons. Uh, Winter time, which would be the pre-lockdown, and then the lockdown and the easing periods are primarily in the spring, and then we get into early summer with a reopening. So again, during the winter time, homes are using natural gas. I mean, also commercial buildings are using natural gas to heat. And then that essentially gets shut off right really in the middle of the lockdown period. So those, we actually discuss that. And we say that we, we clarify that there are additional factors. The wood burning, for example, many homes have recreational wood burning, fireplaces specifically. They're not necessarily using that to heat the homes, although some homes are, but none that we saw. Because again, that signal turns off around midnight. So we, we realize that that's mainly people gathering around the fireplace, potentially after skiing or after being together. And then that signal just tapers off and completely disappears after midnight. However, people are still using natural gas to heat. There's still some pollution. And so then some of these drops could potentially be associated with heating energy needs. So there are many factors that we discuss in our paper, because again, it's very difficult to disentangle this uh, from the actual human activity. But there is, particularly when we look at the easing and the reopening phases, we do see an increase in human activity. We do see an increase marked really by pollution increases.
0: Yeah. And so why is it so important to sort of, I mean, I know it's a very complicated picture, but why is it so important to sort of, parse out this difference between the residential and commercial areas like how can we use this type of data in sort of like our post-COVID or post you know restriction lives
1: well there are really two very specific aspects that I think we want to emphasize one is really the human mobility as we have more delivery drivers particularly on some of the smaller residential streets that causes congestion. And so that's something that we really need to think about, particularly in a small town like Park City, where many areas are residential, primarily residential, the streets are fairly narrow. And so that can cause some traffic congestion increases if every neighbor, for example, in in a subdivision or neighborhood is ordering things every day. I also mentioned that for example, many, at many offices, there's usually once or twice a week where a, either breakfast or lunch is brought along, usually for meetings or to invite guests, for example. And then because that's not happening, many individuals are having also their lunches uh, brought to their homes. So now we're talking about food delivery, say during business hours, as well as many families just ordering takeout. And so we look at it from the traffic congestion perspective. And the other aspect is also now we have to consider, we all know when we go to downtown areas, and it's fairly obvious, particularly in larger cities such as Los Angeles, New York, even in Salt Lake City, we do know that downtown areas are much more polluted because there's, there are more cars. But now if you start to shift that car traffic to residential areas, now neighborhoods where children go out and play, these areas are now much more polluted. So That's something that we really need to start considering, not just in the context of Park City, but really in the context of cities as a whole, where we may imagine once we're home, once we're in a residential area, we're much safer, we're having cleaner air, there's less traffic, but that's not really the reality anymore.
0: Yeah, no, that's so fascinating. I mean, I think a lot of people didn't really think about the environmental impact of getting so many deliveries when we were sort of, you know, staying at home?
1: Absolutely. Here's one thing that's interesting when we started to look at it from uh, from an emissions standpoint, a traffic standpoint. Uh, what we really see is that many people are now much more comfortable ordering many of their, of their goods online. And with delivery services that sometimes even promise delivery within the very same day, then that just saves people's uh, trips to a store. There's really a lot of policy implications to that because now some stores are really seeing some drops in numbers because, again, customers are wary of potentially going to areas where they could be infected with COVID-19, high-risk areas, and I know that many businesses are suffering because of that. And really... Uh, some of them have actually started to shift where their primary focus is to actually have delivery sections where the majority of of the of that business is really now catering towards ordering outside of the business. So there are many implications, and now uh, this is something that we now have to start to consider because there are many aspects. There's obviously the congestion. Uh, There's also the emissions uh, portion of that. There's really also the safety in neighborhoods. If delivery drivers now know they have to deliver X number of packages within a same time period, and now there's more congestion because there are more uh, drivers on the road trying to do the same type of deliveries, then they might be potentially tempted to drive faster. In residential areas, that's where we see children out playing. They're very careless because they are used to having a very quiet neighborhood, not many cars. So now we have to start rethinking uh, all these uh, paradigms.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, at the beginning, you were talking about how um you put in these sensors, you know, in coordination with the city, because air quality hadn't really been studied there. Can you talk a little bit about how air pollution may be different or similar to other places in the state, like in Salt Lake Valley or in the Wasatch Front? I mean, I know a lot of times people talk about like sort of pollution getting trapped in the valley, but obviously Park City's not in that valley. Can you talk a little bit about how geographical differences or weather patterns sort of affect pollution and air quality?
1: Absolutely. So I'm gonna talk about the dreaded I word inversion. So as as you've touched on a second ago, areas like Salt Lake City, Provo, uh Cache Valley. They tend to be in basins and so these metropolitan areas do experience atmospheric inversions, which trap pollutants that are emitted. I always like to separate the meteorological uh, concept, which is an atmospheric inversion, which is natural. What is unnatural is how much pollution we emit. And that's something we can actually control. We will never actually be able to control inversions. They just happen because we're in a high mountain area But because of the pollution that we emit, that is what causes the issue. So that's what we really are looking towards reducing in terms of pollution, because once the lid closes, uh, metaphorically speaking, and the inversion sets in, whatever we emit is going to be trapped there until the inversion washes out. Now, Park City does not experience inversions at the same level as Salt Lake. Again, the mountains are not really on all three sides, as we have in, for example, Salt Lake Valley. It does have some uh, daytime, very shallow inversions, not really anything that we can really discuss really in much detail. It's not a phenomenon that's necessarily affecting the meteorology. So that was actually very fortunate for us because we didn't really have to uh, quantify those effects at all. So that's a good news for Park City that really air does flow fairly well and pollutants don't get trapped in the same manner as really the other three uh, valleys in Utah.
0: Yeah, and so there's a lot of different ways to measure air quality. And so in this study, you were looking at particulate matter. So can you explain what is particulate matter? Like what does that encompass? And then also, how does that affect your health if you have a high concentration of that?
1: You can actually, not an individual one, but for example, and I think many of us have experienced this here in Utah, when we do know there's an inversion happening and many people go away to the mountains and you actually see this whole layer of smog of PM2.5, we are able to see when there's a large amount of them or a high concentration of them. However, during our study, uh, we measured that the the values were fairly low overall, so you couldn't actually see it. You see it when it gets to a certain concentration because it will actually uh, physically block your vision. And to answer uh, your earlier question, PM 2.5 is very much a catch-all term for anything that's that specific size. So that can really be, for example, uh, fossil fuel combustion. It could be, as you mentioned, wildfire smoke. It could actually even be uh, pathogens, viruses. So this could be really capturing a fair amount of uh, of pollution and potentially also some pollen could fall within this size. So what we're doing is we're really capturing all the particles that are of that size or smaller.
0: Right. And so um, obviously wildfires are a big thing in Utah and especially at this time of year. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, the timing of this study, it didn't overlap with wildfire season. And um, that was on purpose, right?
1: Yes. What we wanted to do was to really capture the fossil fuel, the human activity contribution to air pollution. Wildfires, depending on how strong they are, they could dwarf this signal. They could just overwhelm any kind of signal that we would get from really anthropogenic or human Uh, made emissions. So what we wanted to do was really stop the study. And again, we also wanted to keep it in blocks of six weeks for much easier data processing and statistical analysis. And so that is why uh, our study ended when it did. We know that wildfires are a significant amount of pollution. And what we wanted to do was not necessarily confound and really aggregate all those pollutants at the same time. We just wanted to see what the human impacts were.
0: Right. And then you are, though, doing research that does include that data, right? So you will be able to then um, use that as a comparison to this research.
1: Yes, I do a fair amount of work on just pollution in general. And uh, wildfires are a large part of it. Uh, There are many researchers at the University of Utah who do research on wildfire, I do uh, research on specific subset of it, primarily black carbon. Black carbon is again also a subset of uh, fine particulate matter, but that's primarily from diesel engines and biomass burning. And so, the diesel engines obviously not a part of it, but the biomass burning includes wildfires as well as any kind of, for example, fireplaces or any wood chip, for example, that's used for heating. So. That's sort of really the power of being able to use uh, sensors that focus specifically on black carbon.
0: Yeah. Like last spring, there were so many different, as I had sort of said in the intro, there was like so many of these sort of like comparison photos of what different really polluted cities all over the world, what they looked like before the COVID lockdown and then what they look like during the lockdown. And you see these sort of really clear skies and it's this sort of like dramatic you know, difference. And so it got me thinking about like, are there other times when we've seen this sort of like dramatic reduction in air pollution before? Or is this a sort of unprecedented ability to study um, air quality?
1: I think that if we discuss this on a global term, this is definitely unprecedented. We've never really had a pandemic of this magnitude that affected the whole world and the ability to measure its impact. So I think that, yes, there has been previous pandemics, but especially because of really the ability of us that we now have to travel around the world, we're able to spread this virus really across the globe so quickly. And this is going to be true for future pandemics that we're going to be able to really capture this. And now we have, for example, satellite images, We have people taking pictures with their phones, really wondering if what they're seeing is true, if, for example, rivers are actually clean and not necessarily dirty, if people can actually see such things as, for example, a Taj Mahal clearly. And so this is really interesting, because now we're able to take all these measurements, as I mentioned, from satellites, from on-site sensors, just like we had in Park City. And even people themselves taking pictures with their phones, that serves as a record for us to really see how the air quality, how the environment and the water quality have uh, really been affected, among many other things, due to this natural experiment, which was really a COVID-19 pandemic.
0: Yeah. So how can we sort of use your research and other researchers all over the world that have been looking at this? Um, How can we use this type of research to sort of come up with ways to mitigate air pollution? I mean, we're not going to just shut down the world again, obviously, unless we need to, hopefully we don't have to again. But how do we translate what people are seeing and like seeing the Taj Mahal clearly for the first time or seeing a smog-free city? How do you translate that into sort of action?
1: I think that What we need to do is just reflect back on how we felt when we could see clearer skies, clearer waterways, and really think about what can we do? What is feasible? Because again, a complete shutdown is not very realistic unless it's it's absolutely necessary. We also have to consider that many businesses and many people lost their livelihoods. Because they couldn't adapt quickly enough. They weren't able to shift, for example, their business model. And really some, it's a very sad story. So I would never really recommend saying that this is the way to go. What we really need to understand is what actually can change permanently. What are reasonable actions that we can take to improve our air quality? Because what... Really, the first couple of weeks of the lockdown, and this is not just true in Park City, it's true across the U.S. for sure, and maybe across the world, the first couple of weeks when things shut down and everyone was really kind of scrambling to figure out how do we move forward, that can really count essentially as almost as a baseline, meaning what happens in terms of air pollution before humans have their hand at it. And so now we can say, okay, this is what we can almost think about, utopic panacea, let's say. But now what pieces do we, must we add? What are pieces that we definitely have to have? And some of them are actually in existence. For example, people did not stop heating their homes. People needed to still heat their homes. So that is already embedded into that signal. Now, in terms of, traffic, for example, a traffic signal, how much of it can really be replaced by different kinds of vehicles, different kinds of travel? So that's something where we really start to think about when traffic was minimal, it's almost the same as having all cars via electric, in a sense, because those are cars that don't emit on the roads. So that's something that can give us a little bit of guidance and say, okay, well, this is what the pollution was in specific areas and this is really what is business as usual meaning pre-pandemic for some of our studies we've looked a year back same time period to kind of give us a guideline of what is quote unquote normal so when we subtract it to then we started to see okay what can actually be dismissed what can we actually replace and so that's that's really some of the ideas that we've been having as to how can this really push policy forward
0: I've just been talking to Daniel Mendoza. He's a professor in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences with joint appointments in pulmonary medicine and city and metropolitan planning at the University of Utah. His latest study was recently published in the journal Environmental Research. Daniel, thank you so much for being here. I really learned a lot and it was great talking to you.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcast. Our producer is Naomi Ward. The theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tisso, and I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.